Does a dog see a tree? You know, it's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? There's, there's no doubt with it. By the way, just speaking personally, I have no doubt but that dogs see trees, indeed even that they leave a record of their perception behind them very often. But to see a tree is quite different from just seeing something. It's quite different from just seeing. A tree, any given tree, is a particular. But to see something as a tree is to subsume that particular under a general category. And after all, particular trees come in a great variety of sizes and shapes and colors. And so, in order to see a tree, as in seeing a tree, it seems that what is needed in addition to some capacity for sensation, also a capacity for subsuming sensed objects under categories in such a way as to have a concept, you see. And during the course of this lecture, I want to emphasize how Kant himself emphasizes the need for the perceived object to be incorporated into a conceptual framework, absent which there is no understanding of what the object is, and in fact, and in fact, there really isn't an experience either. There's going to be a, an important distinction made between a perception, no question at all, but the dogs and lots of other creatures perceive trees, and the experience of seeing a tree. And Kant is going to argue that a necessary ingredient in experience is just this subsumption of percepts under general categories, forming, forming concepts. Now this is one of uh, many problems that Kant recognizes. Empiricism, at least in its simplest form, will always have trouble handling. If you take the position that all that is required to form concepts is to be the passive observer of events taking place in the external world and put on hold how there is an external world to begin with, an external world to begin with. But if you take the position that all that's required to form complex ideas is to parlay simple ideas, and all it takes to get simple ideas is to associate a number of, of sensations, if you take that that Lockean, what, what Kant refers to as Locke's attempt to physiologize the process, then it's not entirely clear that, that a creature would live long enough to be able to put under the same category gigantic trees in a redwood forest and little saplings that are six inches off the ground, or that any child would understand, ever come to understand, that tabby and mountain lions are cats. More generally, that any set of particulars can enter into a conceptual framework such that one actually understands what one is looking at, and one is not merely looking at it. More than this is required. In, in first lecture, I talked about this shower of stimulation, this incessant barrage of physical events impinging on sense organs, out of which we have to create some 
orderly world, some lawful world out of which we create in Kant's terms nature itself. Imagine everyone in the room had a different word that if somehow you could put all of the words on all of the cards together you would have the, the let's say the menu at the Randolph or something. Right. How, do these, how do these words get put together? How do we put together this, this storm of sensations in such a way as to make this? After all, the manifold of stimuli constitutive of this is diverse, it's changing, it changes as I change its direction and its orientation, it changes as you look sideways at it. It's constantly changing and it has many many different properties. Somehow these have to be pulled together in the right way just as the notes would have to be pulled together in the right way. Kant wants to argue that there's nothing in empiricism that tells us how this happens you see. So we're getting into the project now where he's actually going to attempt to explain things that he is satisfied empiricism cannot explain, which is to say the ordered nature of experience and our capacity to recognize things and place them in a conceptual framework that surprise, surprise, is objective. All right. Promises, promises. So the critique is divided into, this is quite an un, uneven division, into a very long section which he titles The Transcendental Doctrine of the Elements and a relatively short but quite decisive section on the Transcendental Doctrine of Method which we will get to in later lectures. It's under that heading that we meet up with the paralogisms of pure reason, all of the ways that reason gets in trouble when it tries to range beyond the ambit of its proper mission and its powers. Well, what elements does Kant have in mind when he refers to the transcendental doctrine of the elements? The elements are the elements of cognition. One might say the elements that mind as such brings to bear on, on reality. And this is uh, further divided into three main sections. The transcendental aesthetic, by which Kant attempts to establish the conditions necessary for sensibility itself. The a priori conditions absent which experience itself would be impossible which is to say for there to be a visual experience something other than a retina with receptor cells and photopigments and a little dangling uh, uh, retinal ganglion cell tail forming an optic nerve something more than that is necessary something must be in place for any of that finally to amount to a perception and what is it a priori that must be in place? And then the transcendental analytic which establishes the a priori and necessary and universal conditions for there to be understanding itself. And then reflections on the rules that govern the deployment of our rational resources in such a way as to render the outcome 
objective and not subjective, necessary and universal and not relative, iffy and conducive to skepticism. Capito? It's all quite simple when you think about it. Ha ha ha. Now, how does Kant want the term transcendental to be understood? First, with Kant it is something of a neologism and he's using it quite deliberately to distinguish what he has in mind from the transcendent. The transcendent refers to that which transcends experience. It's beyond the ambit of our perceptual resources. It's what traditional rationalism says uh, is available to us as non-sensory modes of knowing. Kant says that's off limits. We don't do that because we can't do that. Forget looking for the transcendent as an element of knowledge. The transcendent can be reached by faith, by belief, by imagination, by hope, by coin flipping, need I go on? But, but not as an element of knowledge, because for there to be knowledge there must be a sensory basis, there must be an experiential basis on which any knowledge claim is based. So establish something as transcending the realm of experience and you have established that whatever it is you achieve it is not knowledge. So he wants to make a distinction now between this realm of the transcendent which is off limits epistemologically and what he refers to as transcendental conditions. Uh, it's at um, A708, B736 where he tells us what he has in mind with the doctrine of methods which we will get to when he says it's the determination of all the formal conditions of a complete system of pure reason so so he is going to develop a I hate the word a methodology he's going to develop a mode of argument and analysis that establishes when reason goes beyond its legitimate its legitimate uh, grounds its legitimate terrain um, now, with respect to the transcendental, he's helpful again in giving us a definition. I entitle transcendental, this is at A11, B25. I entitle transcendental all knowledge which is occupied not so much with objects as with the mode of our knowledge of objects insofar as this mode of knowledge is to be possible a priori. Transcendental refers to the enabling conditions, the conditions that render something possible, do you see? So a transcendental analysis is, a, is an analysis of some achievement of ours and the achievement is established. We see trees. And then the question is what must be in place a priori and necessarily 
for us to have the concept of a tree, for us to be able to subsume a particular tree under that general concept. Now that would be a transcendental analysis. And the conditions necessary for that would be transcendental conditions. So the term refers to the conditions or powers that render something possible, the a priori conditions that are enabling. They don't come about as a result of experience, but are understood to be necessary for there to be experience. You might recall from last week that very breathless Kant's answer to Hume, which when we get today to the second analogy I'll spend some more time on. But if Hume wants a billiard table in front of him, and if he wants balls moving, that is to say if he wants events separated in time and understood to be somewhere out there, he's got to reconcile those claims to the fact that there are no sense organs for out there, there is no sense organ for elapsed time, so where does this spatio-temporal domain come from? And it's going to be Kant's argument in the transcendental aesthetic that it comes from us, that in fact our very mode of engaging the external world is spatio-temporal. And that's what the transcendental aesthetic is, is all about. The necessary conditions for there to be an out there. Now, why must this be the case a priori? And you know what you're tempted to do. You're tempted to take the position of the ordinary percipient and maybe in a huff or with characteristic youthful impatience what did that old Greek say in the rhetoric? Young men have strong passions which they tend to gratify indiscriminately. They love too much and hate too much and in all things do things to excess. Well, in that youthful impetuosity, you might be inclined to say, out there for goodness sake, and use some sort of hand movement to dismiss the metaphysical question of how anything comes to be out there. Well, enter that Cartesian realm for a moment. Suppose you want to accept the proposition that the only thing you have direct access to are your own experiences, the contents of your own consciousness. How on earth could you ever reach the conclusion from events to which you have direct access now in consciousness that there's something out there bringing those events about. That is, what would be the sensory cue by which you understood that some things of which you are conscious are out there and other things aren't? Here's the answer to the Kantian answer to the question. You couldn't do it. This is why he tells us at the outset that one of the embarrassments of metaphysics is that philosophy still cannot establish the reality of an external world. Do you see, if you accept as an argument an empiricist thesis according to which all of your knowledge is mediated by sensory perceptual resources so that the only thing to which you have access are the contents of your own mind, then how could you ever have a warrant for concluding that in addition to the contents of your own mind, there's an external world bringing them about? Hello, solipsism, do you see? 
and there are various counters to it. There are sort of Kant was quite impatient with the impatient common sense alternative that says, "Oh, for goodness sake, we just know it. Get on with it." Um, the one thing Kant never does is get on with it. Um, so, so against the empiricists. Kant rejects a theory that would have our understanding of the external world constructed out of elementary sensations and that somehow time and space go, get, get, get what imported into our consciousness by way of these external events. Can't be the case, he says, it just isn't the case. Um, so, so we have to bring a spatio-temporal framework. We carry a spatio-temporal framework a priori as the in-place conditions of sensibility. We have a capacity, he says, which most fundamentally can be called the capacity of receptivity. We, we've got an apparatus that at least is capable of being stimulated. That isn't going to get us very far. Somehow that pattern of stimulation has to become coherent. It has to be packaged. And the packaging is spatio-temporal. Not by way of experience, but the necessary precondition for experience. Therefore what? Non-empirical, therefore pure. The pure intuitions of time and space. The pure intuitions. Why on earth we chose to translate anschauung, intuition, to the uh, eternal frustration of students first encountering Kant. The German, well, uh, let, let me not become a philologist. If you're a native German speaker and you're talking to another native German speaker about, about a, some cosmic issue, you, you want to know that person's world view, do you see? How they consider the world. You might say over the fourth cup of coffee in a smoke-filled room, was ist deine Weltanschauung? What is your world view? Weltanschauung. From Anschauung, which is to show or to observe something. Anschauungen are intuitions, but I would have you understand Anschauung intuition as a mode of apprehension, a mode of what? A, a mode of beholding the external world. Do you see? In the older German, Anschauen, the verb is to behold. And when I behold upon a night-starred face, in German it would be anschauen, you see. No one would say, and when I intuit upon a night-starred face, huge cloudy symbols of a high romance. Can you imagine any poet saying, and when I intuit upon a night-starred... Well, God, poets don't do much philosophy. So, so the... Pure intuitions of time and space, then, 
become the non-empirical, necessary, universal framework that goes with every beholding we have of the sensible world. Every apprehension we have of something out there. And in fact, space is that pure intuition that is the necessary condition for, Kant says, outer sense. It is in virtue of it that I can distinguish I can distinguish myself from the objects in the external world. There can be an I-thou relationship or an I-it relationship in virtue of the pure intuition of space. And it is the pure intuition of time that is the framework for inner sense. My thoughts succeed each other. That is to say, they are ordered in time. My feelings are ordered in time. That's something I can now project onto the external world, thereby gaining what? Succession, do you say? So now um, Hume's billiard balls can move in sequence. First one, then the other. They are successive in experience in virtue of the fact that the pure intuition of time temporally organizes my inner states. Now, of course, much more than this is required if there's to be bona fide knowledge. Kant identifies two fundamental powers of the mind from which knowledge itself arises. I quote Kant at A50, B74. The first is the capacity of receiving representations. The second is the power of knowing an object through these representations. So again this distinction now between a capacity of receptivity and a quite different capacity for, given we've received it, knowing it. As I say, experience is not merely a bare sensation. Knowledge arises when experience and the pure concepts of the understanding are properly merged, you see. That is to say, the, experience, the experiences have to be subsumed properly under the, under the, right, under the right categories. This second power is the one Kant dubs spontaneity, the power of spontaneity. It is the freedom with which this power operates that permits conceiving of that which is even impossible or extending concepts beyond the range of possible experience. For example, his example at A96, the concept of God. Kant summarizes the process this way. This is a worthy quote. When, when he's clear, he can be quite clear, by the way. This is at A97. If each representation were completely foreign to every other, standing apart and in isolation, that's that shower of events that are not coherently related, if each representation were completely foreign to every other, standing apart and in isolation, no such thing as knowledge would ever arise. 
For knowledge is essentially a whole in which representations stand compared and connected. Receptivity can make knowledge possible only when combined with spontaneity. So these things have to be pulled together in the right way. All right now, what is the source of this spontaneity? If you don't hear the echo, the bat squeak, the mm-hmm of that doughty Scotsman at Aberdeen, the source of spontaneity, says Kant, is mother wit. Mutter Witz. If that isn't a principle of common sense, I don't know what is. Mother wit? This is the most intractable, the most Byzantine treatise in metaphysics in the, in the entire philosophical canon. And on this key and necessary power by which representations are pulled together in just the right way, the power of spontaneity, the source of it is mother wit. Well, yes. Well, yes. Where else? You, not from experience. Do you know how long it would... You, I, I was kidding with you last week with Piaget's comment about the radical empiricist who believes the series of positive integers was discovered one at a time. Suppose you, 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 you try to construct a, a, a coherent, ordered, natural world with no resource other than repeated exposure to things repeated exposure to things and the formation of certain associative bonds. Oh, please. First of all, how could you associate your first encounter with this if your second encounter is this? Or this? Or this? Every one of these things would be another disconnected uh, uh, I shall give you the neurological answer. You won't live long enough. You won't live long enough. Maybe at 97 you'll say, it's a glass? Is it a glass? Is it a glass then? And then I'd say to you, is it breakable? What? <laughs> Now Kant develops a defense of the intuitive a priority of time and space by way of what he refers to as a metaphysical exposition and a transcendental exposition. You might remember from first week that Kant's understanding of metaphysics is it's the arena in which competing theories have it out. Uh, it, it's the incessant argument, it's the yes but, it's the sick et non, uh, it's lively um, and, and sometimes unruly. And, it, it, and that's why you end up with indifferentism on the part of the scientific community, skepticism on the part of the philosophical community, because these metaphysical disputes never seem to come to an end. So the prize competition, etc., etc. Well, Kant is going to engage in a metaphysical exposition 
as I've done so far, to show that there really aren't any, there aren't experiential sources for time and space. That the empiricist project just won't do it. So that's the metaphysical exposition. The metaphysical exposition is to the effect that you cannot get here from there. The transcendental exposition, as in transcendental, now is the constructive part of the argument showing the necessary and universal conditions such that you do get from here to there. So you do get succession, you do get outer sense, you do get a valid and objective uh, representation of the external world, etc. Difference between the metaphysical exposition and the transcendental exposition. Now what about Leibniz and the rationalist tradition? After all, the, the debate that was the, the show stopper, actually, for um, uh, the, the, the early decades of the 18th century was the Newton-Leibniz controversy, which shows up in the, in the Clark-Leibniz correspondence. And central to that whole issue was space. As I noted in the first lecture and the second lecture briefly, with Newton's theory requiring absolute space as what? As that cosmic container into which uh, all material objects are located, and it's really there, there really is a cosmic container into which everything real has been poured. And Leibniz's position by way of the law of sufficient reason, that the idea of space as an empty thing into which you might pour other things requires that space be, uh, that space as a nothing, space as empty, somehow comes about as a result of a reason for having nothing. And that's contradictory. So that debate is going back and, and forth. And Kant is going to take, he's, he's going to take sides on the science of the thing because he is, a new, he's, he is going to be Newtonian in his natural science. But he does understand that the issue of space is a problem and that you cannot get it by having Newton simply put it there. What he does have to make clear is that no device within the rationalist tradition can deduce answers to the question about the source of space. And he does this in a number of ways, but one of the very clever ways has to do with what today we call chiral objects. What is a chiral object? Yes? Sorry? Yes, handedness. That's right. Look, um, if you look at your right hand in a mirror, remember now, it's a mirror image. All of the internal relations that constitute this hand are fully preserved in the mirror image. But you cannot put a left glove on your right hand, you see. There's no contortion of a left-handed glove that will map it correctly onto your right hand. These are called chiral objects. There's good evidence that but the concept of handedness itself. 
suppose you, would, you had some means of contacting life in another galaxy. Let's say intelligent life. <laughs> Which begs all sorts of questions, doesn't it? Um, and here's the question you, you, you sent to them. You sent them this message a after you developed some means of communicating with them. We here, in a place called Earth, have hearts that are slightly displaced to the left. Are your hearts displaced to the left? You realize they'd have no, no way of answering that question. How do you get left and right? Now, on the Kantian scheme, since the mode of apprehension is itself spatial, it is in virtue of the fact that our experiences are spatially ordered and that gives us the means by which to, let's say, establish that if my palm is up and I'm facing north, my thumb is facing east, etc. Because I've already got the necessary spatial structuring built in. But you realize in a universe that contained only one hand and let's say some intelligent being, there's no way an intelligent being could determine whether that hand was left or right. Now that matter stood that way, I wish we had more time, that matter stood that way until I think it was 1958 thanks to Dr. Wu when she in the process of winning the Nobel Prize uh, did some elaborate experiments in physics establishing that God those of you who are doing theology should know this God is weakly left-handed uh, as regards the asymmetry of the cosmos 1958 was the year I earned my bachelor's degree a lifelong left-hander doing battle with a right-handed world and when I discovered that God was at least weakly left-handed I said yes ah sorry I said yes so, so uh, Kant is among the first actually to employ this concept of, uh, of incongruity of parts chirality and to do so uh, in furtherance of the proposition that absent the pure intuition of space we couldn't even make sense of things like that. The point being no rational deductive procedure would, would tell anyone follow this please if all you gave the Leibnizian was this hand and the Leibnizian was required by way of some sort of rational analysis, principle of sufficient reason, law of contradiction, to know that you can't put a left-hand glove on this hand, or, or, or that the mirror image of this hand nonetheless constitutes an incongruity of some sort. There isn't anything within the ambit of reason's powers that would get you to that. Do you see? So the empiricist can't account for it at all, and the rationalist might very well just go running down the street like Edvard Munch's scream. Um, now the, the transcendental exposition is designed to show not only that space is a pure intuition, but that it must be. 
And for his principal example, he chooses geometry, which he takes to be, as he says at B40, a science which determines the properties of space synthetically and yet a priori. He has this in his introduction, he has this praise of Thales. He says, oh, whoever it was, but tradition uh, gives us Thales as uh, the first we know about who, who constructed the isosceles triangle. Uh, look, take the Pythagorean theorem. You don't honestly think Pythagoras ran around measuring right-angle triangles and came to the happy conclusion that there was a formula that you could use that turned out to be a version of a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Even if he were lucky enough in, with the first right-angle triangle that it be a 3-4-5 right-angle triangle, the sheer math of, of doing it for triangles that are, that are odd-numbered would, would be beyond his resources. The geometry we have is something mathematicians constructed. Thales makes an isosceles triangle. He develops, geometers will develop the axioms and theorems that provide a science of geometry, which then, in fact, can be mapped onto the objective world. The way they do this is by having the capacity for spatial representations. It's not something about the external world that they go out and discover is Euclidean, it's that their own spatial mode of representation is itself and of necessity Euclidean and that's what they bring to bear in the construction of the science of geometry and that's what turns out to be, oh happy day, uh, something that lines up with the objective world, with the world as understood by science. So these are, these are arguments adduced in support of the not only the fact of the pure intuitions of time and space, but their necessity. And in fact, their ability to match up with the objective world. It's not an accident that they match up with an objective world because our engagement of the objective world becomes possible by virtue of these very resources. It's what we bring to the situation. So no surprise when we recover, when we recover our own um, aesthetic and, and uh, cognitive uh, resources in our knowledge, in our knowledge base. Now finally there are the three analogies of experience that uh, are central to Kant's critique of traditional empiricism. He says at A180, B223, an analogy of experience will therefore be only a rule in accordance with which unity of experience is to arise from perceptions and not as perception itself. These are going to be rules. These are rules that determine how perceptual outcomes actually rise to the level of experience in a manner that is, not, that is not subjective, not relative, 
but necessitated by the very, by the very absolute nature of the rules themselves. Um, I don't want to take too much time on this. I think Kant chooses the term analogy perhaps after Locke. You might want to consult Locke's essay, Book 4, Chapter 16, Section 12, where Locke says this, Concerning the manner of operation in most parts of the works of nature, wherein though we see the sensible effects, yet their causes are unknown, and we perceive not the ways and manner how they are produced, Analogy in these matters is the only help we have, and it is from these analogies alone that we draw all of our grounds of probability. So, for example, the Newtonian world at the level of observation becomes explicable by way of something called a gravitational force that itself is not observable. But that idea of a force as something that pushes and pulls, it's analogizing to things that we do know about and as a way of establishing the cause of things where we cannot see the cause itself. Mind you, Newton never claimed, well he claimed once and then corrected himself, that gravity was the cause of uh, things. He said uh, uh, the gravitation laws are the rules by which the cause operates. We do not have access to the cause. Why anything released goes down is something he says we, we can't explain. That it goes down, we we know. Well, Kant sets up the, uh, the analogies uh, this way. The first analogy is that in all change of appearances, substance is permanent. Its quantum in nature is neither increased nor diminished. Now, you understand that uh, absent that, there would be no means by which to establish that a something is undergoing alteration. All we would conclude is that it disappeared and was replaced by a different thing. So the first analogy of experience is, is that we experience certain entities as substances in that we recognize alterations in them as alterations in something that is itself permanent versus an utter change in things, an utter metamorphosis. The second analogy, which is a key part of the answer to Hume, everything that happens, that is, begins to be, presupposes something upon which it follows according to a rule. Or as Kant expressed it in the second edition, quote, all alterations take place in accordance with the law of connection of cause and effect. Again, um, What's Hume's theory of causality? What's his account of the concept of causality? Constant conjunction. When, quote, whenever two events are constantly conjoined in experience, it is in virtue of a habit of the mind that one comes to be regarded as the cause of the other, you see. Constant conjunction. Reed had a field day with that one. Reed says, this is a quote from Reed, no two events have been as constantly conjoined in human experience as day and night, and yet no man come of years regards day as the cause of night, or night the cause of day. Put another way, 
One doesn't have to keep shooting Jack before reaching the conclusion that you indeed are the cause of his dying. Generally, one shot will do. Look, look, it, ju it just turns out that there is a fundamental... What did you learn in school? You learned in school that correlation does not imply causality. See? So constant conjunction simply misses the essential feature of our causal attributions. Not that A and B happen together, but that given A, you must get B. Now, that necessary relation is not something that Kant wants to argue is in some way empirically observable. It is in the nature of experience that that rule guides our perception of temporally associated events. Do you see? It's a feature. Because if you didn't have that, there really would be no grounds on which to establish causality. Now, um, the third analogy asserts that, quote, all substances, insofar as they can be perceived to coexist in space, are in thoroughgoing reciprocity. Kant's proof of this is as follows. I can look first at the moon and then the earth, or conversely, first at the earth and then the moon. Perception can must follow, perceptions can must follow each other reciprocally. It's on this basis that they're said to be coexistent. Such coexistence is the existence of the manifold at one and the same time. Now, unless you had that as an a priori mode of experience, there'd be no way of distinguishing between sequences that are causal and sequences that are merely coexistent. I'd be saying something like, well, I'm going to look out the window now, now I'm going to look at you, and I'm looking out the window now, and now I'm going to look at you, and I've reached the conclusion that my looking out the window causes you. Unless there were an a priori means by which to establish coexistences over and against causal lawful relationships. That again is a transcendental argument, you see. You, you, you establish the conditions necessary for X to be the case, already having granted that X is the case. So what's necessary for it to be the case? I want to wrap this up with a, a remark that Kant makes in the Prolegomena. This in the Prolegomena at 2.59. Kant ties his entire project to what he takes to be David Hume's problem. For Hume, says Kant, quote, the question was not whether the concept of cause was right, useful, and even indispensable for a knowledge of nature. For this Hume had never doubted. But whether that concept could be thought by reason, a priori, and consequently whether it possessed an inner truth independent of all experience. Now I think there's serious Hume scholarship that, that, that might contest the claim that, that Hume actually was not skeptical about there being causes. Uh, for the little it's worth, my view is that Hume was not at all skeptical about there being causes, and nor was he trying to provide an account of causality. I believe Hume quite clearly was attempting to account for the concept of causality 
and he accounts for that concept by way of a kind of mental associative machinery. Kant is saying that what Hume threw his hands up over was the inability of a purely rational analysis to establish causal lawfulness. Well, the second analogy is an answer to that question of Hume's. Experience is possible only through the representation and the necessary connection of perceptions. Absent the necessary connection among perceptions, experience is simply not possible. Thus, to the extent that empiricism would restrict knowledge to experience, it can succeed only by accepting the very grounding of experience itself, which is the grounding Kant provides in the second analogy. Thank you.